Well, we are going to start in the, in the book of Revelation today, and how we're going to uh, come at it is rather than just do a, uh, a session of sort of broad introduction, we'll jump into the opening paragraph and do some of the introduction through uh, the opening paragraph, and then we'll finish doing introductory things next week in the second paragraph. Uh, because it, uh, the opening words of, uh, of the book of Revelation lend themselves to that end. But just before we even do that, turn with me first in your Bible to 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. Paul's letter to Timothy uh, Traditionally, in the, in the history of the church, the understanding is um, that Timothy became the bishop of Ephesus. And, um, and that he lived probably until A.D. 96-97. The book of Revelation... As we're going to argue, there's two broad views of the year that it was written, conservative views. One is 70 A.D., right at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. And the second is about 90 A.D. So the interesting thing is, the book of Revelation is addressed to seven churches there in Asia. And the first church that is addressed is the church of Ephesus. And there's a chance, therefore, a decent chance, according to the tradition and the history of the church, that um, Timothy could have been an old man in that church uh, at the time that John is thinking about them. And what's going on there? And there in your outline, 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every age, as it holds promise for the present and also for the life to come, the generation to come. Now, I quote that because sometimes as Americans, we think that the book of Revelation is designed to help a person sharpen up their prophetic chart. Um, You know, so you study the book of Revelation. uh, In order that, you might sharpen up your prophetic uh, chart and be able to name the players uh, with mystical precision as you find them spread throughout 
the book, when in fact, the purpose of the book of Revelation is exactly this. It is written to enable a people to train themselves in godliness and to persevere in godliness in an incredibly hostile environment to godliness, which is where they found themselves in all of those churches in Asia, in the Roman Empire, um, We're going to see many allusions in the book of Revelation to what Paul refers Timothy to Timothy as silly myths. One of the things that were going on in the Roman Empire late first century is that they were starting to flirt with the notion of emperor worship. Maybe these guys are actually deity in some way. Now, earlier on, they probably didn't actually think that, but what they did think is it's a really good political move for those of us in the middle range of politics to advance the idea that we think the emperor should be spoken of as a god because he kind of likes that sort of thing, being spoken of as a god. Uh, And so they would pander to the emperor and then make pandering to the emperor something of a legal requirement. And now Christians would begin to have their problems uh, surviving in this uh, society. So that said, let's turn now over to uh, Revelation 1. Um, one to three, and I'll open us with prayer as we get ready to read the opening three verses. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to have uh, your words to us, and particularly these words come down to us from John through Jesus Christ, ultimately from you, as we'll see. We ask, Lord, that as we look at these things together, that we would be encouraged and deepened and gain a fresh sense of the challenges as well as the opportunities that lay before us as people living in our own version of a very dominant and therefore tending to be domineering social order as the people addressed in this book were definitely living inside of. And we ask for this to be given to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So the opening three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, 
who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear and those who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. So the book of Revelation, first of all, is a revelation from Jesus Christ. Um, That opening little phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, scholars argue back and forth just a little bit, but the vast majority would say, so the emphasis grammatically would be, this is what they refer to as a a subjective genitive. Jesus is the author of the revelation. He's the one speaking the revelation. This is Jesus speaking to the seven churches, and that is certainly primarily what it is. However, uh, a couple of uh, very, very, very fine grammarians, one um, Protestant and one Roman Catholic, uh, uh, have come to this kind of language and said, yes, but the, the bulk of the book of Revelation is also about Jesus Christ. It's not just from him. It's also about him. Okay, well, okay, then it's the message from him that's a little bit about him. And they say, no, no, I think that um, uh, both Daniel Wallace and, uh, and a guy by the name of Max Zerwick say, no, I think here you have John doing something that, he's, that he has a tendency to do. And that is to try to say things in such a way that as you ruminate over them, you realize that he's really saying two things at the same time. Um, uh, Dan Wallace, in particular, uh, gives this, I think, a really nice turn. Zerwick just called it a general genitive. Daniel Wallace pushes the envelope a little harder and says, no, this is a plenary genitive. In other words, it's not just that it's possible to see these two things. He's arguing, I think John meant you. His intention was that you would meditate on the fact this is a message that's coming from Jesus Christ. And it's also about um, Jesus Christ. And it, and it is certainly that. Uh, and I tend to side with them. Now, there's all kinds of scholars who dismiss that outright and think, no, 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 these guys are playing around with the grammar. And, and Wallace's response to that is, I just think that the grammar is more sophisticatedly written than you are acknowledging. And I, and I just think he's right about that. I think he's right about that. Uh, Secondly, the book of Revelation is a message from God. You see that? I mean, that's just, um, again, it's just stated so simply. It's the kind of thing that we read right over the top of, right, when we're reading 
our Bible. Uh, say, well, Jesus Christ is God. Yes, well, that's part of the point. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. Which God gave to him. So already, in the first verse of the book of Revelation, we always we already have hints, right, of the Trinitarian nature of uh, the God of the Bible. Um, as we're going to see, Jesus is clearly in this book spoken of as God himself. And yet, God gives Jesus a message to give to his servants. Um, uh, if you slip down to verse 4, uh, you'll see that you won't have to go very far before the Holy Spirit also comes into the equation. Uh, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you in peace from the one who is, from the one who was, from the one coming, from the seven spirits that take that to be the Holy Spirit of God, the seven spirits which are as before the throne of God. And so by verse 4, you have a reference to the triune Godhead. But just to back up, you know, to a, and state the obvious, right? Because the, the obvious is often what we most need to remind ourselves of. The, the radical nature of Christianity in this world and what is likely to increasingly get Christians into trouble in this society is this notion that there is such a thing as word of God. In other words, there is a transcendent word No set of Americans, however influential they are, however well-connected they are, however wealthy they are, no set of Americans can have the word of final authority because somebody else has it. Now that's a radical idea to us. Because we end up saying to a culture who thinks they can reinvent anything and everything. You can't do that. Because God says. And so that's a really hated idea. God says. There's an ultimate word. Now, we don't say that as a nation, but we do say that as a church. God says. There are words that come to us from God. Now, we're going to argue uh, that the best, most plausible for the author of the book of Revelation is the author of the epistles and the um, Gospel, that's certainly true in the early church, and I think it's true in 
most other angles as well. Remember how the Gospel of John opens. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him did not one thing come into being that has come into being. Which is a way of saying, God reigns supreme. This is his place, not ours. And he will, in the end, have the final word as to how things are evaluated here. We will not. Now, in the first century, this little handful of pipsqueak people that looked in the Roman Empire to be what they were assured was a third-rate offshoot of Judaism were announcing within the Roman Empire that the Roman emperor was, did not have the highest voice in this world, in his own empire. There's authorities higher than him, much higher than him. As we'll see, images will be used of him that are not flattering. Um, by John in, in teaching this perspective. But it is a message from God. Thirdly, uh, the book of Revelation is a word from God and through Christ to us, to his servants, to his servants. Um, Throughout the Old Testament, uh, the word servants is really a a word that carries a a lot of uh, weight and a lot of value, right? Moses referred to repeatedly the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord. Um, Great thing to be a servant of the Lord. And so here... These people, mostly from the lower end of society, first century Roman Empire, are uh, called, used, a title is used of them, that they are servants of the living God. Now, one of the big questions in interpreting the book of Revelation is uh, how, how, you, how you take it. And uh, I'm just going to mention three out of the four uh, ways uh, the fourth one that I, well, I guess I am going to mention it, but I'm not going to say anything more about it. Is it was popular at one point to uh, uh, believe, and there's still a few, very few people who would do this, is that the Book of Revelation serves as an outline of the coming next 2,000 years of church history, so that you can just sort of look, and then you'll see laid out before you all the various movements that happen throughout uh, the next. Uh, uh, 2,000 years, um, uh, which is, is, is silly. Um, and, they, and, it, and, it, and it comes across as silly, 
uh, in their efforts to do it, right? Because they can't agree about any of them. You know, they all see something different as they go forward. So the real arguments, the real arguments become almost always into a combination of of these things. It's a term, I, I, I don't know, it's, it's not a necessary term, right? So the preterist view. The preterist view of the book of Revelation is that it primarily, the whole thing pretty much unravels in the first century. So what you're looking at here is the, um, the experience of Christians in the first century uh, period. And so the destruction of Jerusalem and all those kinds of things that's uh, spoken of kind of as if it was the uh, end of the world. And the whole thing is, is in the past. The whole thing is in the past. Um, the other view, we'll, go, we'll, we'll skip the middle one. Uh, the second view is that uh, this is very, very future-oriented. The first four uh, books our, our first, uh, excuse me, the first uh, the three chapters are uh, about things that were going on at the present, these churches that were actually existing and they were really there. Uh, and then, uh, and then you go to the throne room of God and then you go to what will be happening in the world sometime in the distant future uh, when the final... Um, manifestation of good and evil take place at the end of the age. And so, you know, most of the book is just about, uh, 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 you know, it's a little Star Wars-like, but only in time-wise. You know, it's, a, it's all about a time period uh, uh, far, far away. Um, uh, but but that, that we tend to, all, and tend to always think that we're just arriving at um, and in recent years, uh, people, you know, literally made millions of dollars uh, arriving at that and, and writing about it. Um, there's a futurist perspective. And there's, there's definitely a futurist element to this, right? Because it repeatedly, as we'll see, it, it announces what will happen at the end of the age. The end of the, the, end of the space of, of the present age, is, as we know it, is definitely... Uh, come back to repeatedly. Um, and so this is definitely has this future uh, element to it. But it just as equally, it definitely has exactly what the predators are talking about. This is really meant to encourage those people at the, uh, at the church in Ephesus in the first century. It is about what's going on for them right now. It's about that. Right now. And it's about how things are going to turn out at the end. We say, well, we're not either there in the first century, and we don't know how close we are to the end. Yes, which is why the idealists come along and say, look, what you're supposed to do with this book is take the experience of first century church and apply it to your own situation, which will never be terribly different from theirs. Um, 
And if, if you remember a number of years ago when uh, Dr. Rainbow, who wrote a little book on this uh, overview of the book of Revelation, uh, that was his, his position. I think it's very, very well stated that you are, you're supposed to be a, a, a reading the book from a preterist, um, idealist, futurist perspective simultaneously. All the time. That's how you read it. You are looking at what they were experiencing in the first century. You are taking note of how much of that is very, very analogous to where we are right now. And remembering that the important thing for them to keep in mind is that in the end, God is going to reign supreme. Now, why was that so important? Well, especially in this first century, they would have been very tempted to believe that there's a very good chance that the Roman Empire will bring its heel down upon them and just rub them completely out of existence. That, apart from theological concerns, was fairly plausible. Um, it's one of the tremendous ironies, right, in the, in, the, in, the, in the 20th century. I mentioned this a while ago. I'll never get over it. First time you, 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 see, you see the statistic. Um, um, my, uh, my brother-in-law's... Uh, bought me a, uh, 30 years ago, he bought me a, a seven-volume biography on the missionary Hudson Taylor. A guy by the name Broomhall wrote a seven-volume biography on Hudson Taylor. So that's a bit of a hint as to who my uh, brother-in-law's hero is. Oh, Hudson Taylor. Um, and... Uh, so Hudson Taylor went to China, and he devoted his life to reaching China. And when he dies, um, there are 18,000 Chinese converts. 18,000. Over the next 50 years, that 18,000 grows to a million. And so there's a million believers in China when Mao takes power. And Mao vows to eliminate them completely. He is removing all religious expression from the country, and he murders tens of millions of people in the effort. So he was pretty serious about it. He was incredibly serious about it. 
And by the time he and Nixon are meeting together in the early 70s, near the end of Mao's life, how close to successful had he been? Well, the guess is that by then, after he had been wiping that million people out for 40-some years, for 40 years almost, no, for, no, for 20, 20-some years, there were 70 million of them. Like, oh, today they think there's 100 to 120 million people who profess to be followers of Jesus in mainline China. Um, But that did not seem obvious in the first century, apart from being told, no, nothing will be able to prevail against, against us. Now, one other thing to notice about uh, this little phrase here that's really, really striking uh, and it relates to what I was just talking about. I put the story in front of the horse and in a, in a, in a cart in front of the horse in a sense. But to those servants, about what is necessarily going to come to pass quickly. What is necessarily going to come to pass quickly. Um, the little word in, 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 in Greek, this little word day, um, in the New Testament, most of the usages of it are from Luke. I think he's got, I think he uses it uh, 23 times in the book of Acts, uh, like 18 or 19 times in the gospel. Um, and then after... Those two books, there's a tie for third place in its usage. The book of Revelation and Matthew use it eight times each. The idea, though, is a a massively powerful and important idea. That is that God is running the show. That God is determining how things go. Hence, Mao can decide to wipe the million people out, but if God decides that the one million becomes 70 million, guess what happens? The 70 million show up. Um, Made me think of um, a great scene at the graveside in Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Remember when uh, Dickens is out there with the third ghost of Christmas and he's just uh, wiped the snow off of the gravestone with his name on it. And he says to the ghost, these things that you're showing me Are they things that must necessarily come to pass or only that might come to pass? Which is it? And that dialogue continues until 
he wakes up in his own bed, of course, and finds out that it was only what might come to pass without repentance. That's not what John is talking about here. He's talking about things that will necessarily come to pass, that God will bring to pass. And that concept, in a, uh, you've got to be a little bit more dedicated to get to this one. Uh, and, and my statistic is wrong. I went and I did some fresh research. I've been saying this for, you know, for eight, nine years, ever since I read War and Peace. I've been saying, last 70 pages, last 70 pages. That is a lie. It's not the last 70 pages. It's, a, it's about the last 46 pages. So in War and Peace, you have this big epic story and, uh, and Tolstoy, you know, and, and so you've, you've made it. You've made it all the way to page in, in the Every Man's Edition that I read. You've made it to page 1340. So now you're on page 1340, so you've got this much of the book over here and this much of the book over here. And then the strangest thing in the world happens. And Tolstoy starts talking. All the characters just disappear. All of these people that he's been talking about for 1,340 pages, they just vanish. And he starts talking about whether history is determined or free whether there's something drawing everything together. And he argues, there most certainly is. I don't know exactly what it is, but the more you try to think about it, the more you'll see there are things necessarily unfolding all over the place. Well, that's right out of the Bible. That's this word. I am going to show you the things that must necessarily take place. Part D of verse 1. The book of Revelation is relevant for the first century, for the present, and for the future. In one sense, we've already covered that, but this language, uh, I just want to make reference to this. That which would necessarily be quickly. Quickly. There's a very liberal scholar by the name of R.H. Charles. And R.H. Charles devoted, like, more than a dozen years of his scholarly life, and he is a world-class scholar to producing uh, a century ago his two-volume commentary in the book of Revelation. And the view of R.H. Charles is that John simply got it wrong. Uh, you know, he thought the return of Christ was, uh, you know, uh, going to be very, very soon in that generation that generation passed on, and so did the next one, and so did the next one, and so did the next one. And so, like, and, nope, nope, uh, thanks for playing, but nope, John, you got it wrong. Um, uh, all this stuff that you thought about the end uh, came to nothing. Uh, and so now we just uh, study this as 
an interest in apocalyptic literature in the first century, it has no uh, real value beyond that academic exercise. Um, now, most scholarship, as, as, as things move forward, changed its opinion about that uh, pretty radically. In that, they started to notice that this kind of language is actually found pretty regularly in, um, in the New Testament. And over the last century, especially, uh, scholars of quite a wide variety of stripes uh, have taken, so that which was necessarily to come to pass quickly, and we'll see at the verse 3 will open, the, uh, close, the time is near. So you get quickly and the time is near. And the idea is probably for John, uh, that is the kingdom is, is so near that it's already here in one sense. The kingdom is so near that it's already here. Uh, to get a sense of that, just remind yourself, we, we made reference on this. Uh, I'm sure you all remember it clearly because you remember all of my sermons clearly. Uh, but back in uh, Mark, Mark chapter 1, verses, verse 15, um, we read this as Jesus is introducing his ministry. I'll read it into it from verse 14. But after John was given over, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying... The time has been fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the gospel. The time has been fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has drawn near. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about him being standing right there with them. The kingdom of God is so near, it's already here. It's standing with you. The king has arrived. The ministry of the king is now beginning. Well, by the time John is writing this, this is true in a more advanced way, right? Because now, by the time John is writing this, he knows not only that Jesus has come, but that Jesus has raised from the dead and ascended on high. And so that the, the king, the ultimate king, is already on the throne. The king is here. The kingdom has been, and the scholars use this word, inaugurated. It's inaugurated. It's not consummated. It's not consummated. That's why, you know, during the Soviet period, um, Thousands of believers were tortured to death in Russia. Jesus is on the throne when this is happening.
In the new heaven and the new earth, that'll never happen. In the consummated kingdom, that'll never happen. The book of Revelation, very much written in the perspective, that kind of thing can happen. Even though Jesus is the king. That kind of thing can happen. That kind of thing will, will happen. Kingdom is so near that it's already here. Uh, E, the book of Revelation is full of signs. Word pictures all over the place. Dragons, clouds, harlots, beasts, false prophets, stars falling, frogs, images all over the place. Not only images all over the place, numbered images all over the place. Seven candlesticks, seven angels, 144,000 of one set of people, 24 of another. Numbers, symbols all over the place. And the biggest advancement in the study of the book of Revelation really is not much more than 50 years old, 60 years old at the outside, was those who began to notice, he seems to constantly be making veiled references to things in the Old Testament. Everybody agrees on that now. Just how constantly is the only thing that they really argue about. Now, in the, in the version of the, uh, of the Greek New Testament that I use, which NA, NA26, the editors of NA26 believe in their analysis of the text of the book of Revelation, as I have it down there for you, that they find 635 allusions to the Old Testament. And, um, and, and we went right past one without noticing, right? Because it was right there in the opening, in the opening phrase. Um, um, so Amos, Amos 3.7. So this is what I mean by allusions, and you can see that it's a, it, it's, a, it's a tricky business, and yet there's definitely something to it. Um, Amos 3, 7. For the Lord God does not do a matter unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. The Lord God doesn't do a matter unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. And what are we told in the opening phrase? 
God is revealing his secrets through his son, Jesus Christ, through John, to his servants. It's the same old story. Uh, it's, it's this prophetic word. Um, secondly, um, uh, verse 2, I should say. The book of Revelation is likely written by John the Apostle. We've already discussed that a bit. And he is the author of the gospel, the epistles. Um, uh, he gives the word of God, this testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to these seven first century churches, as we'll see uh, a little bit more next week. But then, uh, verse 3, because uh, we want to spend just a little bit of time here. Verse 3 says this. Back Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is the one reading and those hearing the words of the prophecy and those keeping the things in it having been written. For the time is near. Blessed are those Happy are those. Uh, this, is, this, this message is really, really key to you if you want to be uh, a happy, blessed person. You're going to need this perspective, the perspective that is in this book. Um, now, among the things that are in the book, that will really, really stand out, especially with what we'll cover this fall, going through chapter 5, is just the grand, come back to it in a mighty way next week, actually, right? The grand nature of God. The one who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. How important is it that a person has a really grand picture of God that they carry around in their head and heart. That God is a huge, massively large, important thing to you in your thinking, in your daily thinking. How big a thing is that? Well, in the perspective of this book, it's a really big thing. He says it over and over again. He throws the light on this over and over again. You have got to be thinking of God like this on the grand scale. You, you can't think that you're in and out with him, that sometimes he's there, that sometimes he's not, sometimes he knows, sometimes he doesn't. You can't be like that. You've got to be clear 
if you're going to be able to maintain happiness, blessedness, Perspective of this book is that the faithfulness of God through Christ is the key to lasting blessedness. But the book also warns us that will not always seem to be the case. That will regularly not seem to be the case. The Roman Empire and the Beast Kingdom will do the best of their ability to convince you that actually distancing yourself from Jesus is pretty key to your happiness. Distancing yourself from any commitment to things that Jesus says that are out of step with the present empire are pretty key to your happiness. And if you don't distance yourself from those things, we're going to take your happiness and smash it. Right? We see it happen around us all the time. Our politics every day. It's always going on. Right? Not to pick on her. I think she does a good job. A couple years back, though, we came out with a pretty strong transgender statement about what we were going to do here in the state of South Dakota. And then Amazon and the NCAA spoke up a bit about what they thought. And what happened? we realized the policy needed editing. Oh, no, no, we we never meant that. No, 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 my, no. We never meant that. What is that? Oh, John will make it very plain to us what that is. Kingdoms of this world, the beast kingdoms, strong, influential, massively strong, massively influential. And it seems pretty plausible that your happiness may be more in their hand than in anybody else's. But John, don't you believe it? Your happiness is always ultimately in God's hand, and you better know it. And you better be persuaded that it's the case. Um, The books warn us that powerful spiritual forces are at work in the world. Now, practically speaking, these next uh, put keep one one finger here and then go back. Remember, the Church of Ephesus, Timothy's likely at the Church of Ephesus. We, 1 Timothy 4, again, 1 Timothy 4.
First Timothy four verse thirteen. We just referred to this a month ago in Terry's final Sunday here. Until I come, pay attention to the reading, to the exhortation, to the teaching. Reading, exhortation, teaching. Uh, Very similar to what we have here. Reading, hearing, keeping. The importance of reading from divine perspective over and over and over and over and over and over again cannot be overemphasized. That you are a reader of the Bible. Encourage those close to you you might have influence over to be readers of the Bible. But not just readers, but as he puts it to Timothy, people that apply the Bible to yourself as you read it. Exhortation. You apply the Bible to yourself as you read it. You catch yourself worrying about things that you know God's told you not to worry about, and you try to repent. I've got to quit worrying about this. I've got to quit looking at this. I've got to quit trusting this. And you're trying to teach others that you have influence over to do that. To read, to apply, and to understand the entire world in the teaching framework of the Bible where God is creator and the whole thing ends in a new heaven and a new earth and he reigns supreme and there's no hope aside from him. And believe me, secular people are more aware than anybody else that there's no hope aside from him. They know it. They experience it. Those that are at all honest will just tell you that it's the case. Back in the spring, I I used several illustrations, right? Susan Sontag, coming to the end of her life with cancer. This really secular, mighty intellectual, always been a special person all her life. What does she try to tell herself as she comes to the end of her life with terminal cancer? Maybe I won't die. Maybe I'll beat death. Her doctor approaches her and says, Susan, it's time to go home. You should be near. He's out in Seattle. She's from New York. Time to fly home while you still can. Be with your friends at the end. And she says, I don't have any friends. Well, your family. I don't have any family. There she is. 
special all her life in her own mind. And then, what do you have? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's why. That's why. It's reading, hearing, keeping, placing into practice, modeling, recommending. Place these things into practice. 